Don't Wreck Yourself features words and situations that are not appropriate for young listeners. This show is only for adults and unsupervised juvenile delinquents of exquisite taste and refinement. Each week, Matt and Ryan look into claims they find online, answer your questions, and say bad words! Now your way is the only way, and my way is the only way to Fill the space between a hard place and a rock is all we do but we'll entertain the conversation that leads us to the truth. What do we know? What trips to telephones that are no different to you? Welcome to Don't Wreck Yourself. My name's Ryan Placetti, and I'm here to disentangle you from the Gordian knot of the internet's bullshit. Hi, and I'm Shaking Shaner, keeping the seat warm for your usual guy, Matt, who isn't going to be here today, but hey, you've got me. Shake and Shaner, excited to be here. Thanks for the opportunity for me to not wreck myself. We were talking before about Disney slash Pixar's Cars series. My son Roman is, he's absolutely obsessed with the Cars series. Well, you know, I, uh, I'm an adult uh, guy who still likes watching cartoons. Um, some people would say that's weird. I would say that's being a geek or a nerd. And yes, I really like the Cars franchise uh, because it's actually a lot of fun. They do some great voice work throughout the show, but there are some kind of hidden adult things, kind of like Shrek and some of the other movies where there's uh-huh. hidden things in there that only adults are gonna gonna really notice or see. And and one of the things we were talking about earlier, I was the first time I watched Cars, and I saw. Uh, Lightning McQueen notice essentially the tramp stamp on Sally. I'm like, oh, what the hell? What they're bringing that into this movie? That's kind of crazy. Yeah, she had a little bit of pinstriping on her trunk. Now, what's really interesting is there's also a scene earlier in the film where a pair of tourists come into the uh, Radiator Springs, the town in which Cars takes place, and. There's a low rider that runs the paint shop and he, his hydraulics lift up his back end and he shows the lady his Von Dutch style. And she says, oh, Von Dutch. And the implication there is that he is showing her his car genitals. That is something that you, you're watching for the first time and you're going, oh my God, he just showed her his junk. And she's like, oh, hey, look at that. Thank you. Yeah, so there's certainly an implication that genitals exist. Um, there's also another great adult joke in that film where Toe Mater, Mater, uh, who ends up, spoiler alert, becoming Lightning McQueen's best friend. Uh, he's uh, played by Larry the Cable Guy. And Lightning McQueen is talking about the championship cup for car racing, which is called the Piston Cup. And Mater spits out what he's drinking and says, he did what in his cup? <laughs> And I lose it every time because I've seen this film, you know, three times a day for the last four months. <laughs> I am from the land of corn, otherwise known as Nebraska. And our claim to fame these days is Larry the Cable Guy. So, yeah, you're welcome, world. He came from us. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, what, he does a fantastic job on the Cars franchise, except for uh, Cars 2. I can't get I tell you what, I've I've tried it three times now. And I get a little bit further each time, but at some point I'm just like, I I just, I got to turn this off. It's not the whole spy thing. Huge James Bond fan. Love all that stuff. I don't know what it is. I'm having a hard time making any headway through that second damn movie. 
Uh, so for those of you who have not seen Cars 2, Cars 1 is a beautiful film about a rookie race car learning to respect his elders and see things beyond the scope of winning and self-promotion. He essentially learns to appreciate other human beings. Cars 2 is an international spy thriller with an unusual number of explosions and machine guns. <laughs> and and, and uh, all the British cars think they're James Bond. The name's Bond. <laughs> James Bond. But what I think is really interesting about the world of cars, and we kind of hinted at it earlier, there is an implied section. There, there's, a, there's a lot that does not make sense about the cars universe. Uh, we know that cars are manufactured. Uh, and we know that because in the second Planes movie, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen Planes, Dusty Cropper finds out that he can't race anymore because his, his transmission or his clutch or something is no longer being manufactured and he's got a faulty piece of equipment. So we know that they're manufactured, parts are made for these things. But at the same time, we also have uh, scenes where Lightning McQueen is told by Mater in some of the shorts not to be such a baby. So they have a concept of babies. They have male and female cars. We have the revelation that Von Dutch has something to do with this guy's genitals. The implication being that these cars are fucking. So then the question is, how are they doing it? Who's putting what where, right? If they're getting busy, how are they mechanically, right? Yeah. And if he does have junk, where's he sticking it in her trunk? Either her trunk or her tailpipe, I would suspect. Yeah. That's weird, the tailpipe. <laughs> because if she, if she was just running real fast, that'd be a little wa- a little warm, right? You wouldn't want to stick it there, man. You get blisters, and then you got to find some sap. You can't get blisters and- your cars. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, it's just you go to the Jiffy Lube. One thing leads to another. <laughs> I assume the Jiffy Lube is some sort of like... In and out prostitution center in the cars universe. It well, it almost have to be right. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Speaking of fucking cars, America's got a lot of them, but you know what else America has a lot of patriotism. Yes, yes, we do, and I, I think that goes across the political spectrum. But what I thought was really interesting, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a link to a Facebook page with an album with something like 220 photos of a 4th of July celebration, not in America, but in Poland. And it's being described as a LARP, which for those who are not in the know is a live action role play. I know you're in the know, Shane, because you are a, uh, a stalwart defender of the, the nerd, the geek and the, uh, and, and the absurd. Yeah. That's- the, the whole shebang. <laughs> As you could say, it's my thing. So this is really interesting because typically when we think about LARPing, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. It's people dressed as wizards or warriors, uh, swinging swords and throwing notional fireballs at each other. But in this case, it's people just pretending to be Americans celebrating the birth of their nation. And I got to tell you, some of those photos, they're a little bit on the nose. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, the first photo in the series is not. It is definitely a guy with a uh, with an assault rifle. I think the assault rifles are off too because these are not AR-15s. No, which is not. the preferred American assault rifle. What's great is the Facebook page is all in Polish. So this is not something they were like, "Hey, Americans, look at us." This is something that they were doing internally that kind of went viral and eventually, predictably, 
ended up on the other side of the pond. So the description of this event is, on July 4th, 1776, the United States declared independence. The newcomers from the old continent wanted to create a new state in America built on democracy, freedom, and equality. For decades, millions of people led by the American dream have drawn to this beautiful country to finally, regardless of birth or social class, become someone else. More than 200 years later, many Americans live under conditions different from what the nation's founding fathers imagined. Barely making ends meet, striving to be family members and worthy Americans despite poverty and exclusion. Although they live on the fringes of society, their home, a small town lined with caravans and shaky houses, is for them the essence of the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's kind of beautiful. It it is in the way they're portraying it and the way you just describe it. I mean, it really is. You think about what they're trying to be a part of. And I will say this, some of these photos, they're pretty good with their accuracy. I think I saw a KFC bucket in there somewhere. There are a few um, KFC buckets. The The actual location that they're LARPing in is supposed to be rural Ohio. There are tons of Ohio State flags around, and there's at least a one Ohio State University in the uh, sweatshirt in the mix. There's a few things that gives it away. If you didn't know and you were just looking at photos, you can kind of tell the people look a little bit different. They don't look like your average Midwesterner in the U.S. And then I don't know if you saw their shot on their grills. He was like holding up these two small little portable grills that they were grilling on. I'm like, no respect American would ever use anything <laughs> like that, dude. What are you doing? The, 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 those were grills for tailgates, not for a 4th of July celebration. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Just make sure we clarify here. Yeah, I think I, I think we are more or less on the same page. But like I said, you know, the automatic weapon that this guy's toting around is definitely a Kalashnikov. It's not, uh, it's not an AR-15. But they nailed some of the stuff. Like one one guy has a sign that said "God bless America," but the but America, all the letters except for me are faded. <laughs> exactly. So they put a little stink on it. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> it really looks like America. <laughs> And then back to your buddy with the with the assault uh, weapon that he's got uh, in his hands, he looks nothing like an American in that photo in the the supposed military yeah. stuff he's wearing. That that's pretty clearly Eastern European looking. Well, no, that's uh, a, that, nothing, that is uh, an old school Marine Corps BDU hat. You can see the EGA on it though. The the hat, yes. The hat, yes, but the pants and the and the jacket are definitely not American military issue. He did get his hands on a legitimate EGA hat. Uh, did I say that that was Eagle Globe and Anchor? It's Eagle Globe and Anchor for those of you who are not in the veteran community. And uh, just being a Marine, where's your starch in that thing, bro? I mean, come on. If you're going to represent, represent. That is a very floppy hat that has clearly been compressed through shipping. Uh, <laughs> it really looks like, if you didn't know any better, you just would assume this is a 4th of July picnic. The way they've got it, some of the shirts, and you mentioned they're wearing a lot of American shirts, U.S. flags. There was even somebody wearing a shirt with American money on uh-huh. it. I mean, you, they put some effort. And then, of course, uh, I love my buddy with the overalls on. Uh, I grew up with most of the male members of my family wearing those, not just while they were working, but, you know, you throw a flannel shirt over that and you've got Sunday wear, my friend. <laughs> the gentleman at overalls, there's actually a really great photo where he's standing in front of, it looks to be a trailer with an American flag flying. And he's picking up trash in the yard. And the guy uh, who looks to own this house is screaming at him. And there's like exercise equipment in the front yard. There's there's all sorts of stuff going on. 
it's not necessarily a favorable view of America. In fact, there are definitely a couple pictures in there that are criminal. <laughs> so they, they have people who are LARPing as police officers. They have people who are running a fake meth lab. And there is uh, another one where there's a guy outside of a building holding a sign that says casting. And then the next image in the series is a woman sitting on a couch next to a bunch of sex toys and a ring light. So either they think Americans are using Fourth of July as an occasion for shooting pornography or they or they shot a porn at the Fourth of July celebration. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Well, you're going to do what you're going to do. You need a quick buck. I mean, you know, it all it all works out that way. <laughs> but some of the other things you were talking about in here, some of these photos, you could tell they put a lot of effort into this, right? This isn't just a few guys trying to pull a pull a goof. They put some freaking effort in this. This is dozens of people. Yeah, and there's a there's actual Heinz 57 ketchup bottles <laughs> there. I I I'm just assuming that's not a big seller in Poland. I could be wrong. But I mean, you can tell there's some effort and commitment to this LARPing and try to be as tongue in cheek American as they can. Yeah, I for one appreciate this. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Some of the dead giveaways we talked about, we talked about some of them. Uh, one of them for me, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to paste two photos into the show notes because the same guy appears in both photos. And I feel like he is the absolute best proof that this is in fact an Eastern European group. There's the first photo. He's the gentleman in the background uh, wearing the red tracksuit. Now he also appears in another photo in this series. This one, he's more clearly visible. I think he looks a little bit like Ted Cruz, which is the what, what, what drew me to it at, at the outset, but he's wearing a make America great again hat. It's a, and it's a black hat with yellow writing. So it's not a true MAGA cap, uh, but he's wearing a turquoise tracksuit. And if you look very closely, you can see. Yeah, actually, he's wearing that over the actual red tracksuit. So, you know, they're, they're trying to keep this real and make it look like lots of people in different costumes. And yeah, we got you, bro. <laughs> we got you. Wearing tracksuits on tracksuits is definitely Eastern European. Uh, the other dead giveaway is everybody in this photo set is white. <laughs> America is a diverse population. We have a lot of people, even in our rural communities, you're going to see, uh, you know, even if it's a predominantly white community, you're going to see people who are not white. Yes, you are. So I, I guess my question here, and this is probably a thorny topic for two middle-aged white guys to talk about, but is this cultural appropriation? You know, I don't. It's okay to pass. You can just say pass. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to pass because I, I don't think what it is. I think it's satire, right? I, I think they're just making fun of Americans in our culture and, and, you know, a little tongue in cheek and maybe a little too far. Is it maybe not so accurate? But is that okay? When when you start talking about cultural appropriation, it's about taking something without an appreciation for what it was. And I think they may have an appreciation for what it is. And, and I would absolutely agree with that because you can see the commitment to this whole thing. I, I'm not offended or thinking they're stealing my uh, my culture. Um, but I will say this. I grew up in a redneck uh, rural part of Nebraska. So, you know, if we could make that culture go away and not expand it is probably what I'm after. <laughs> 
they're I, I don't think that they're selling it. I think that they're acknowledging it uh, and portraying it in a fun way. And they anybody in in this photo set is welcome to join me on the Fourth of July. The only thing they're really missing for a true Fourth of July picnic or celebration, a whole hog barbecue. Okay, that is more of a regional thing. And granted, it is a huge region of the United States where whole hog barbecue is a is a real thing. But I'm from originally New England and barbecue is not something they do up there. Pretty much everything in New England just gets boiled. Like I grew up eating boiled chicken because that's good. That reminds me of uh, the Captain America movies, the Marvel MCU, where they're like, so how? You know, the being flash frozen and waking up in the new world. How is it for you? He goes, well, the food's better. We tend to just boil everything. Yeah. And that's kind of, uh, well, that's getting into the whole change in food ways in America over the last 50 years. Uh, American cuisine has accelerated, I, I think is a fair, is a fair term to use. Like we've, we're, we're more conscious of more flavors than we ever have been before. Absolutely. And, and talking about the whole the whole pig barbecue and the reason I brought it up isn't because I thought that's American. Actually, that's what my family did every year on the 4th of July. Uh, we grew up on a hog farm, so we had a good supply, yeah. right? Not hard to find one for the old barbecue. But yeah, that was something they my family did growing up. And when I joined the Marine Corps, um, got out, went back home for, for about a year, they were still doing the traditional family whole hog barbecue. So, I mean, I don't think it has died back where I'm from. So that's why, why I brought it up. If anything, I think the concept of barbecue has expanded over the last, because people realize barbecue is delicious. Like you can find decent barbecue around, uh, around America. Now it's not just a regional cuisine anymore. Um, you can say that a certain territory or a certain area has the best barbecue and it's an academic argument because you can get all of those resources anywhere in the United States. And if you have the knowledge to do it, you can pull it off and sell it. Well, I'm really glad that our, our food choices, as you talked about, and searching for flavors has really accelerated because uh, it is a lot different than it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid growing up on a farm in Nebraska, the spiciest thing we had was called ketchup. <laughs> so... I welcome the change, my man. <laughs> I welcome the change. Speaking of cultural appropriation and food, that's a that's a place where it gets kind of very complicated, I think, because food is such an intimate part of our lives and how we see ourselves as a people. Like even, you know, discussing Fourth of July, the first thing that came to your mind was whole hog barbecue, because that's what you grew up with. And I I look at, you know, conversations around cultural appropriation and, you know, for me, part of my coming of age as, as, you know, an adult was the language training I received in the, in the army. I went to the defense language Institute in Monterey, you know, I had Korean instructors and they took us out as part of our cultural training to, you know, restaurants and they taught us how to prepare Korean food. And so Korean food and other Asian foods have become a huge part of my diet and the food that I cook at home. So for me, uh, you, you could argue that it's appropriative, but, but I mean, you know, what I cook in my, in the privacy of my own home is my own business. But for my kids, they're literally growing up eating this food. Like this is going to be the food that they, you know, they go into the world having experienced. And so when they think of, well, what's a, how do you celebrate a birthday or how do you celebrate this or that? 
they're going to look back and say, oh, well, that's the day that we make really good ramen or I don't know. It's it's it. I, I don't think it's appropriation at, at all. Now, that's coming from a guy who I never had Chinese food until I joined the Marine Corps. I was 22 years old before I ever had Chinese that is, food. Why? Didn't have it. It didn't exist. Didn't exist where I grew up in the rural areas and nobody made that as the staple. I still grew up with your meat and taters as your staple and whole grown vegetables. So for me, I got to tell you what, when I first, when I really started discovering food, it was like opening a whole new world. Literally. Uh, of flavor, taste, things, all of this stuff. I was living in Denver uh, many years ago. And after I got there, uh, a friend of mine was like, hey, some of my friends, we do this, we call it our dinner party. Are you interested in joining us? It's every Friday night at five o'clock. I'm like, sure. I'm not sure what it is. What it, we would visit a different restaurant every Friday night in the Denver metro area. It could not be American cuisine and it could not be a chain restaurant. Okay. So, and everybody got a turn to pick and nobody could order the same thing off the menu. Everybody had to order a different dish. So that way then you could share with everybody. So everybody could try something. Different. I got to tell you what, man, I did that with them for months. I didn't realize all of the food that was out there, but I'll tell you what I did discover. I love Russian food and I love Korean barbecue bagogi. I got to tell you what, those are the two big takeaways I got from that. <laughs> Discovered a lot of other stuff. I had no idea Russian food was that good. Uh, not a clue. I, I, I got to tell you, but speaking of Midwestern traditions or I, I don't even know a good way to put this, but you're bringing a topic that is very Midwest specific today. It, it, it is. Hey, Ryan, again, thanks for uh, allowing me to be on the show and fill in for Matt. Keep his seat warm, as it were. And this topic I wanted to talk about, you noted the Midwest. It's something I discovered, uh, and it's in Minnesota, and I discovered it several years ago, and I just find it fascinating. It's called the Kensington Runestone. It's a giant slab of stone covered in ancient runes. Now, as the story goes, it was discovered in central Minnesota in 1898 by a Swedish immigrant by the name of Olaf. <laughs> That's right. Not Olaf. Olaf. He said that he found it while he was digging up a tree in a field, digging up a field, and he found this massive stone intertwined with the roots of the tree. He originally uh, wasn't sure what it was. They turned it over. They found some markings on it. His son and him then believed that maybe they found a, an Indian almanac. Not quite sure what that meant, but that's what they uh, said. They thought it was an Indian almanac. Well, uh, an almanac is, you know, without without Googling it, you, is usually a compendium of like farmer wisdom uh, and fa like farm wisdom and information. So maybe like a calendar or a planting cycle or, you know, or he was making it up. Well, once they took a look at it and, and discovered the writing, the rune stones through the way it was uh, translated is eight gates and 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland to the West. We had camped by two scaries one day north from this stone. We were out to fish. After we came home, we found 10 men red of blood and dead. Save us from evil. And if then further to say, we have 10 men by the sea to look after our ships. 
14 days travel from this island in the year of 1362. So that's really where the controversy then comes in is, is this a real stone that theoretically Leif Erikson was uh, in Vinland or North America off the coast of Canada and Nova Scotia in that time frame? So is this a real thing or is it a hoax? As a lot of people believe him being a Swedish immigrant, understanding uh, the rune stones and, and Norse writing, that maybe he made this up. So a lot of people think he made it up. Other people now claim that uh, because one, they said some of the writing and rune stones he was using didn't come into use until the 17th or 18th century. So it couldn't have been from the 1300s. But then there's another group of people that come by, some of your more fringe people who say, no, it's absolutely real. It's the real deal. It was put there by Vikings in Minnesota. So inland, oh, yeah. a long way inland, right? So there is some great lakes bordering Minnesota, correct? Oh, there are. There are. Absolutely. But they're not like right next door. So, I mean, this is further inland. So they would have taken a river or a creek, which yeah. I believe is scary is that they referring to it, which is absolutely plausible. But a lot of people would automatically think this is a hoax. Me, I'm just on the other end. I want to think it's real because how cool is that something that old put by the Vikings is actually there. I may be naive and it may be a hoax and I really don't care because I've actually gone and seen this. I lived in Minnesota for a few years. I think it's real. I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong. Don't care. I'm just fascinated by this big chunk of rock or etched in, in runes from uh, Vikings almost a thousand years ago. I think for me, uh, one, I mean, if we check our, if we check our calendar, uh, you know, the 13, what was it? 1362. That's a solid 130 years before 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right. So from a, from a historical standpoint, if it were real, it would completely change our understanding of European exploration of North America. And we also have a, a really good understanding of the navigational expertise of the Vikings. So not only were they great at open sea navigation, but they were also very talented at taking freshwater routes inland in order to conduct raids. So the Vikings were raiding far inland in Europe. They really raised hell in the Middle Ages because they were able to penetrate the interior of the continent with their shallow longboats that were also seaworthy. So they, you know, they'd come down from Vinland or wherever their wherever their point of origination was, and they would sack cities in very grandiose ways. So the idea that they could have taken a river inland in North America is not crazy. We know that Leif Erikson came to America. Or, or, or led expeditions to America. We've found the archaeological remains in New Finland, uh, Canada, and you know we know that the that they had an established colony on Greenland. It is not far fetched to say that this could have happened. Absolutely, it's not far fetched. And actually, recently, back to your comment about Newfoundland, they recently did some research uh, at one of the archaeological sites, and they're now dating it back further to around 1000 AD that the Vikings were first in Nova Scotia, uh, Newfoundland, and Canada. So that takes us back to an even earlier point than we thought before. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is absolutely plausible. Whether it is or not, don't know. But 
I think it could be a real thing. And you know what? I just realized it is a real thing. The Italians are pissed off that uh, the Vikings were there first. Uh, And so this is now a conspiracy between them and Spain because Spain financed Christopher Columbus. We just solved the whole thing, man. Well, here now, my name is Ryan Placetti. Um, I was I was I was raised in an Italian family, but I am not Italian. So my loyalties are suspect. I'm the blonde guy in The Godfather. Uh, (laughs) So my take on this from from an archaeological standpoint is that it is entirely plausible that Vikings made it further inland by way of freshwater routes than we have archaeological evidence to support. That said, this guy sounds like he's possibly full of shit. And I say that with the knowledge that in upstate New York, we definitely have a character in a major American religion who also found evidence of an earlier civilization buried on his property. And that guy's named Joseph Smith. So this is kind of a trend in America in the mid 1800s to find evidence of older civilizations documented on engravings that were buried and just waiting to be found by somebody who is the perfect messenger or the perfect recipient of the message. So Joseph Smith found gold plates that were uh, revealed to him by the angel Moroni, and then he was able to decode them using a magic hat um and seeing stones and and then of course the angel took them away before he could actually show anybody outside of his inner circle and the testimony of those 12 people ultimately is the basis for the foundation of the church of latter-day saints Olaf, in this case is a swedish immigrant who happened upon nordic runes on his farm on his property (laughs) so i I find the i find the coincidence so highly suspect And, and while i think that the lack of archaeological evidence does not necessarily preclude the type of event that is being described here from being true. I do not think that this tablet is itself evidence of such an expedition. I'm not going to disagree with that at all. I want it to be true. But my my next question then becomes, is that how they became the Minnesota Vikings? (laughs) I think is because of the Viking runestone. Otherwise, there's no clear link between Vikings and Minnesota outside of (laughs) Swedish and North and oh yeah, you betcha, don't you know? I live there. there. They do talk that there there were a ton of Nordic immigrants to that to to that region. And you know, it's 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 part of a trend in culture where people try to latch on to older civilizations. And by the time this episode airs, you will have heard last week's episode, which features uh, Dr. Brad Hafford from the University of Pennsylvania, my old boss. But we talk about the lineage of kings and how, you know, you draw upon earlier dynasties in order to legitimate yourself. And the same thing kind of happens in other tales. So in this case, you know, he might be a new immigrant to America, but look, my people have been here forever. That's why Italians historically have raised up Christopher Columbus as a as a hero, not because the things that he did were great. The things that Christopher Columbus did were objectively terrible, but he was an Italian who legitimated the arrival of later Italian immigrants. Like, we've always been part of the American story. Look, Christopher Columbus founded America. Olaf is doing the exact same thing, but with Vikings. And why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, first of all, I love Vikings. Don't want to face one in a dark alley. Yeah. Berserker rage, big giant warhammers, that whole thing. 
But no, I think it really does go to your point because there's even more stories, uh, right, Ryan? Even more stories of that here in the U.S. of people claiming to have found things at different locations to relate back to even older, more ancient civilizations. There are a few more I could give examples of, but I'm not going to take us down another yeah. rabbit hole. But you're right. It, it is. And you see it so much, especially if you start reading a lot more of the fringe articles and fringe books that are out there. There's a lot of people believe that there's a giant cave in the Grand Canyon that it contains Egyptian mummies. I think that's highly unlikely. But, you know, I'll, I'll save that for another episode. The only rabbit hole that I will dare tread around the rim of is uh, working as an archaeologist in Israel. Everything is politically motivated. Um, you know, the Israel Antiquities Authority has a lot of leeway in terms of how they fund and support projects. And one of the major factors that determines whether you're going to get official uh, funding from the Antiquities Authority is whether or not it establishes the rights of the Jewish people to control Israel. You, you might have two equally interesting, from an academic standpoint, archaeological sites. But if one of those sites has a synagogue on it, that is a site that's going to be turned into an archaeological park. And it, it just comes down to saying, hey, not only are we here, but we've always been here. Well, exactly. Except now I live in Virginia and I was outside the other day. And on a whim, I decided to dig a hole uh, and I found a whole bunch of corn and bratwurst. So I think it means that my family was actually here a long time ago. Uh, the bratwurst were still warm, which was a little weird. Not sure how that happened. But so, yeah, I'm laying claim that my family was here in, in Virginia for eons, sir. I love this topic for a lot of reasons. It hits all of my buttons. It hits uh, fringe archaeology, Americana, but... Speaking of another great fabrication hailing from the Midwest, I think What's Shaken with Shainer is one of my favorites. Well, well, thank you very much, Ryan. And, and um, my show, What's Shaken with Shainer, the podcast that celebrates the passion and the madness of the geek, the nerd, and often the absurd. Stories like the Kensington Stone, that really has a home on my show. We talk about a variety of things, everything from uh, the 1981 Saturday morning cartoon, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends to a 200-year-old novel, Ivanhoe. And recently, I just did a bit on a half-naked statue of George Washington. <laughs> so the, the, the great thing about my show is when I say the geek, the nerd, and the absurd, a lot of people automatically assume it's pop culture, geek, and nerd. Couldn't be farther from the truth. I'm really talking geeky, nerdy, dig down into the weeds and talk about those things that aren't in pop culture, like the Kensington Stone, which we just talked about. I, I, I have just one question. You know, you, you threw it out there. It's a, it's a throwaway, interesting line. But I have to know, is George Washington naked enough? Is he nude enough for me to know what the daddy of our country's dingle looks like? Uh, no, 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 ah. not that naked. He's, he's bare-chested. He's completely naked down below the navel. He's got a little toga. Okay. Oh, 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 over the, the, the angle of the dangle. But he, I mean, he's ripped. He's jacked. He's got a washboard stomach going on. Um, by the way, I do too. I just have a few loads of laundry <laughs> in it right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Shane brought a promo for us today. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to play that promo right now. You're going to get a little taste of what, uh, what Shaking with Shaner is all about. With that said, here's the clip. What's, What's Shaking with, with Shaner? The podcast that celebrates 
the passion and the madness of the geek, the nerd, and often the absurd. Yay! With your host, Shake and Shaner. Aww. Hey everybody, this is Shake and Shaner, the host of What's Shaking with Shaner, where we always embark on a journey into the passion and madness of the geek, the nerd, and often the absurd. We get deep down into those odysseys and curiosities that generally do not come up in casual conversations with the norms, which really is the premise of our show. To listen to What's Shaking with Shaner, you can find us on all platforms, or you can head over to our website, shakenshaner.com. That's right, shakenshaner.com. There is no G in Shaken. I really hope you give our show a try. You won't be disappointed. Thank you. So, first of all, thanks for bringing the clip. But one of my favorite episodes of your show is The Crash at Crush. Awesome. When I discovered that several years ago, that is such a unique story. <laughs> at the risk of spoiling your episode, The Crash at Crush was an event that was organized by Ed, yet another 19th century <laughs> promotion artist uh, in which he decided it would be a good idea to take two trains, put them on the same track, and run them into each other in front of a crowd of people gathered at close range. Not close range. I mean, it was 100 yards. I mean, it's not like that's close when you're barreling several tons of steel and boilers down on each other. <laughs> and then the crazy thing is, all of the engineers were telling them, oh, we're fine. You don't have anything to worry about, except one dude, the, the one that said, no, this isn't a good idea. They got rid of. When the trains, the locomotives hit on, on impact, both boilers exploded the at the same time. What are the, yeah. what are the odds? Who, who, who knew? So we're not going to tell you what the aftermath of that was. You're going to have to tune into What's Shaking with Shaner, but it's interesting. <laughs> That's kind of the fun of the show, right? Find those, those small little tidbits and things that you are interested, fascinated about, that you find amazing. And, and the show gives it that voice and gets to share it with other people and guests on the show to talk about those other types of things. Uh, and it's actually been a lot of fun. We've uh, had the show almost two years now, so it, it's been a great ride. Speaking of things that are highly debatable, I stumbled across this article on Vice that kind of blew my mind. The title of the article is Bees Are Fish, California Court Rules. California court does rule because if you turn bees into fish, that rules. <laughs> I want that superpower. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so the story here is that a California court ruled that bees can be considered fish uh, in order to qualify them for environmental protection. Yeah, they said there was enough loopholes in the law that the, that the court said that fish is a uh, term of art. <laughs> So they could redefine certain things in that based on some of the loopholes of California state uh, legislatures, state laws. And so they can redefine it that way. But it's interesting when a court says, well, it's a term of art. I think that's really interesting because there's definitely a division between like the hard sciences and the liberal arts in university. And it sounds like the liberal arts got their way on the scientific question of what is a fish? <laughs> It just doesn't make any sense. And I, I, I guess it goes a, for a little bit further for me on who's actually filing a lawsuit on this. Who is suing who to determine 
is it a fish or is it not a fish or or how it came to be? I mean, that's part of the craziness too, right? Yeah, I, I think it wasn't necessarily that people were suing to have bees considered as fish. I just think that's the way the argument ended up because they have laws on the books that protect fish from certain environmental factors, uh, you know, as, as res- that, that occur as a result of agriculture. And an earlier court ruling had included snails under the grouping of fish because it said they said they don't necessarily need to be vertebrates in the water. It's uh, it's the idea of a fish. Broadly speaking, <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but it, it totally makes sense. They're, they're trying to protect bees from pesticides and other environmental toxins released in the course of agriculture. Some of our listeners may not know this, but I suspect many of them do. Bees are extraordinarily important to not only agriculture, but our natural world and basic human survival. Right. And growing up on a farm like I did. You know, we did use insecticides in certain things, but we never went out of our way, obviously, to eradicate the bees on the farm or to ruin their natural habitats. And I believe that's what this court ruling does is it protects them from intentional eradication. You know, like right now, I'm actually going through this in my life because I've recently hired a pest control service uh, to come to my house and provide, you know, pest control maintenance. And the debate that my wife and I have been having is whether or not to spray in the immediate area around our house. And it's tough because uh, you don't want to negatively impact, you know, pollinators specifically. But at the same time, I would really, really, really like it if the the marmorated stink bug would stay out of my house. (laughs) Or 5,000 ants. Or 5,000 ants. And, And you know what? Actually... It's funny you should bring that up because I don't have a huge problem with ants. Uh, ants really are only an issue if they get into the stuff that is not like is not a mess. Because for the most part, ants are like, hey, you left this lollipop here. I'm going to just eat this and take it back to my queen. That's fine. Ants are really just trying to help you clean your house. It's just sometimes like anybody cleaning your house. There's a possibility that they're going to clean something you don't want them to get into that you didn't think was dirty or out of place. We have a, had a big ant problem, and my wife had absolutely no problem getting pest control out here and saying, spray everything, spray it twice, get rid of the goddamn ants. That's how I feel at most family reunions. But you know who I'll never get rid of is Rick Reynolds, because he has been kind enough to provide us the use of his song United from the album Portals in Progress. You can find Rick on Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify, and on Instagram, at Rick Reynolds. Uh, would you like to tell folks where they can find... What's shaking with Shaner and Shaner himself? <laughs> yes, I am shaking Shaner, Shane, Shaner, even Stano. That's a long <laughs> story. But check out What's Shaking with Shaner. You can find us on pretty much every single podcast platform out there, or you can go to our website, shakenshaner.com. That's right, shakenshaner.com. There's no G in shaken on the Twitters. Shaken Shaner is where you can find me. We're going to expand it out in a few other places, but I also have a co-host. His name is Psycho Bob the Cat. Psycho Bob the Cat is now having his own 10-minute shows. The show is completely written and picked by Bob, so there's plenty of good cat humor (laughs) in those episodes. You can find Psycho Bob the Cat on Facebook at Psycho Bob the Cat, or you can also find him on Twitter at Psycho Bob, the CA number one. 
Psycho Bob the Cat, you're going to find him. So if you want to figure out what's going on with What's Shaking Shaner and Psycho Bob the Cat, check out our show. It's a good time. You're going to laugh. But more importantly, you might learn something from a cat. Or or maybe, maybe it depends <laughs> which episode you're listening I, to. I will tell you that we follow Psycho Bob the Cat. Uh, and Psycho Bob the Cat follows us at Wreck Your Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and pretty much anywhere else you can find bullshit on the internet. Uh, you can also find us uh, wreckyourpod at gmail.com where you can send your suggestions for episode topics, feedback, criticism, whatever sets your heart ablaze, send it to us there. I promise you I will look at it within a week or two. And I will I will treasure your messages for always. And if it's really, really, really good, I will forward it on to Matt. <laughs> so if between now and next week you find yourself staring at a strange insect wondering whether or not it's a fish and you don't have a fine arts degree, we encourage you to check yourself. Don't wreck yourself. We are united, but we're so far 